0: Welcome to the Commercial Matters Podcast. Your show host is Amit Kapoor, owner of Mindful Contract Solutions. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of the Commercial Matters Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about a situation that's, in my view, quite common in transformation programs with a number of suppliers. Because suppliers are kind of seen as part of the program team delivering a common goal, which is the outcomes of the program, the in-house team feels a kind of a moral obligation to ensure that the supplier is paid every month in a timely manner. Now, what can occasionally and rarely happen is you make a payment which the supplier wasn't due to receive. And it's only in hindsight that you pick up that something like this has happened. So this is the case of a possible overpayment. In my experience, program teams are usually conversant with how they should go about overpayments when it's done to employees, but they aren't very sure if there are any opportunities to pay a supplier back when that overpayment has happened as a result of an invoice that should not have been paid. And also there are common beliefs around when you pay for a piece of work, you are deemed to have accepted that piece of work and you have accepted that charge. So is there a going back if you realize subsequently that you were wrong? This is what we're going to be exploring in the judgment today. We are going to be looking at a case that went to the court of appeal. This is a case between Dergamo Holdings versus Evenwick Holdings. And it deals with the subject of unjust enrichment. Although unjust enrichment is a legal phrase, the interpretation of that is fairly obvious from its literal meaning. Essentially, should a party that has received sums that it should not have be entitled to benefit from the receipt of such sums? Or should the party that has paid these sums out and it should not have paid out should be able to recover those losses from the other party now in theory and fairness it might make common sense to believe that the right thing to happen in this case is the money goes back to where it belongs but in a commercial setting things can get a little complicated because dealings are usually done on the back of a contract whilst i don't want to go into the details of this case that we are going to explore the basic facts in those case was this concerned a share purchase agreement that means one of those companies was buying the other and a price was agreed of 950 million pounds so the stakes were reasonably high and although it wasn't coded into the contract there was a requirement for the company who would receive the funds and therefore kind of dispense its uh, shares or transfer its shares would actually have acquired two other assets. The party that was in receipt of those sums of $950 million did not in actual case do that. Basically said something on the lines of, for technical reasons, we haven't gone ahead and done that acquisition of two other assets. So effectively, the $950 million, from the point of view of the person giving that money, was being given for more than what should have been necessary. The Court of Appeal was asked to decide the fundamental question as to when a claim in unjust enrichment can succeed in the context of parties' contractual allocation of risk under a valid and subsisting contract. In simple terms, the Court was to decide that Where a contract specifies certain things have to happen between the parties, but does not specify a few of the other matters. In this case, the contract hadn't specified the acquisition of the other assets by the receiving company. Can the company paying out those sums under that assumption or that belief that it's getting a lot more of assets for its price, can it claim its money back? So what was interesting in this case was there was a relevant contract but there was a separate understanding as to the basis of payment under it. Now, I hate to say this because this concerns my sector, but arrangements like this are not uncommon in how companies can engage contractors outside IR35 in the new regime, where often statements of work will be stood up. But if you look very carefully and scrutinize the milestone payments and the conditions for payment, you realize that actually the arrangement is about paying the contractor for the time that they have invested in working on the program. And there's something to be also said about the frequency of those payments. They would usually correspond to something like once a month. So although everything is tied to deliverables, the intention is to pay the contractor for time. Now I'm not saying that's universally what happens, but quite often statements of work, if scrutinized carefully, can give you that impression. Now what happens in this case if the contractor is able to deliver the outcomes required by the contract without having put in even half the time? Would you as a client genuinely want to pay out the contractor all of the sums claimed in that instance? And then this is a case where the contractual answers can be different from the moral answer. Contractually you would have to pay out and morally you may think that is not right for the contractor to be claiming that sum in full. Coming back to our case, the Dergamo Holdings versus Avonwick, the court heard from some very, very creative counsel. The claims were also on quite novel grounds of deceit and fraudulent misrepresentation. There's always a high hurdle in trying to prove things were deceitful or fraudulent. But as you can imagine, the stakes were really high and um, The party paying out $950 million did not really want to take a risk of not losing it. I think it's fair to say that the Court of Appeal decided the case on first principles. And in doing so, it gave a lot of weighting to what the parties had chosen to agree in their contract. So the Court of Appeal made a comment on Para 112 of the judgment to basically say that it is common ground that for whatever reason, the parties deliberately omitted any of the additional assets in the share purchase agreement so clearly it was a bargain that the parties had consciously struck the absence of a reference to those assets was not a mistake of any kind it was a deliberate omission and this is definitely going to hurt the claimant in the case but on para 115 the court of appeal said that in my judgment the fundamental reason why the claim in unjust enrichment cannot succeed is clause 2.4 of the share purchase agreement repeated here for ease of reference and the clause says just this 2.4 the consideration for the sale of the shares shall be 950 million dollars that's the clause so effectively despite hearing you know very novel and carefully constructed arguments the court really decided the case on the back of what was agreed in the contract now in my view as far as this case goes i don't think we have seen the last of it i would be very surprised if the parties running these arguments decide not to pursue this case to to supreme court considering the cost of the of running the case which is likely to be in hundreds of thousands the amounts at stake are significantly higher so you can expect more action as long as the Supreme Court permits this case to be heard. But credit must be given to the Court of Appeal for fleshing out every aspect of the unjust enrichment claim. I think they've gone back to history and theoretical references to unjust enrichment to explore the topic deeper and then make reference to the arguments by the counsel in this case. So definitely a lot of hard work put in by the Court of Appeal judges to get to this judgment so where does the judgment leave us in terms of the kind of contracts we strike with suppliers on IT programs and when I say suppliers I also refer to external contractors it basically means we are kind of bound to what we say and write in the contracts and also bound for the things that we choose deliberately to omit from the contracts if the basis for payment is different to what you have actually coded in the contract, it is not likely that a court would depart from the contract or the contractual payment mechanism to prefer an extraneous excel sheet, for example, that sets out what is being charged and what is payable. So if you are really agreeing dummy fixed price contracts where the intention is not to do a time and materials for either internal compliance reasons or to make the agreement IR35 friendly or for whatever reason you're likely to have bound your organization to those payments in absolute terms of course as long as those conditions for the payments are met now you would wonder where exactly do claims of unjust and en- enrichment succeed one of the common areas in which unjust enrichment claims succeed is where you make payments by mistake to a party Quite often this happens in banking transactions where one party erroneously gets the sort code or the account number wrong and funds reach the account of a party that had no clue it was going to be getting any funds from anyone. So such mistaken funds, funds are sometimes claimed through unjust enrichment provisions. So it's quite handy for the law to have a tool to allow people to recover from mistakes that they might have made in paying other people. But beyond that, looking at unjust enrichment claims for kind of rolling back contractual provisions, that is a bit far-fetched. The courts are not really permitted to interfere with commercial parties' contractual allocation of risk. I think that's it then. I hope this was useful. Thanks for attending this podcast episode and I hope to be coming back with another episode next week i'd be really grateful if you like what you are hearing to leave us a feedback on whatever device you hear a podcast on so it could be spotify it could be itunes your feedback would help more people learn about the show and benefit from it that's it for this week folks have a great week ahead that's this week's episode of the commercial matters podcast don't forget to join us next week for another episode